0: It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In the United States, the summer of 2023 brought record heat waves, deadly wildfires, thick smoke, severe storms, and drought. Almost by the day, the need to take action on climate change is becoming more clear and more urgent. We're making
1: progress, but this is hard, and it takes the attention of the most senior levels of government, mm-hmm. and that. I've I've worked in three White Houses, I've never seen that before, where cabinet secretaries are going project by project and saying, what's the problem? Why can't we fix it? How do we speed it up?
0: John Podesta is responsible for climate policy in the Biden administration. His primary challenge is to cut U.S. emissions to zero by 2050. That's just 27 years away. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations presented at the Aspen Ideas Festival. To reach its ambitious emissions targets, the White House is betting on the Inflation Reduction Act, which will spur a historic investment in clean energy. Podesta's chief focus right now is implementing the act by pushing projects into reality. On stage at the festival, Podesta talks with Noticias Telemundo reporter Vanessa Hawk about how he plans to navigate the many roadblocks to a clean energy future. Here's Hawk.
2: John, you have a very, very important job in a critical time for our country. So um, we are committed to cutting emissions by 50% in 2030, and basically going net zero by 2050. So uh, this is a, a very, very, very big undertaking. And the Inflation Reduction Act is is a way to, to begin this. I would like to start by asking you, what will be the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act in our climate goals? Well, first of
1: all, this is the biggest investment in clean energy, not just in the history of the United States, but in the history of the world. And uh, yes. it's a tremendous achievement. It's at the heart of an economic strategy. Uh, I I was just listening to Steve Ratner in the other uh, tent It's at the heart of an economic strategy that's all about investment, putting people to work to do the work that needs to get done. And it covers the full range of emitting sectors. That's unusual. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't just go after power, it goes after transportation, uh, 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 industrial processes, agriculture and forestry, and buildings, the big sources of emission, with support for the private sector to make the kind of investments that the United States needs to do. To take the lead again uh, in climate action uh, and to really uh, do something else for the world, which is to drive down the price of these clean energy technologies to set off a cycle of innovation. So we're very excited about what's already occurred, uh, the response from the private sector, uh, the announcement that are virtually daily uh, about new uh, manufacturing, new deployment uh, across a whole range of uh, technologies, Uh, but uh, as Greg, who I've worked with over the years, uh, uh, said at the beginning, it's one thing to pass it, it's another thing to implement it, uh, <laughs> and so we're, at, we're hard at work trying to get that done.
2: Yes, I bet, definitely. So it's been almost a year since uh, the Inflation Reduction Act was signed into law. Could you share with us some specific samples of successes of cases where, where the IRA is actually lowering the emissions? Yeah, well, uh,
1: as I said, this is government enabled, but it's private sector led. So our first job really was, uh, because it's uh, the core of the act is built around uh, tax incentives to do the right thing, to do good things, to to go clean, mm-hmm. uh, and it. Uh, it, it did something that's really quite unusual in Washington. It gave 10 years of certainty to, the, to that investment horizon. We've had support for clean energy in the past, particularly for clean power, but it was like on-off, on-off yes. annual cycle. Now we've got 10 years of certainty, so people can project uh, and decide to make investments in big projects. And we've seen that happening really all across the country. Uh, in the there's been uh it since President Biden came into office about five hundred billion dollars of investment in manufacturing. about half of that is in the uh clean tech sector. about half of that has been just since the i r a passed mm-hmm. uh and as i noted we're we're seeing uh investments occur. Uh, in Georgia and Alabama in Michigan, Ohio and upstate in New York, in Nevada and California, uh, people are excited about the opportunity uh, to build things uh, to uh, where, where i 'd say the maybe the greatest amount of the action has been has been uh, uh, taking the incentives to uh, really move forward with the electrification of transportation so you see the big uh auto companies make making commitments uh to moving towards away from uh internal combustion yes. engines and towards electrified vehicles that's with the support of another bill that the that the president passed the bipartisan infrastructure law which is deploy, uh, deploying 500,000 uh chargers across the country of more than 100,000 uh fast chargers we've been working with the people uh, again in the, in the private sector there's uh we're we're sorting out uh so that it's uh it's easy and available but you can go from c to shining c in electric vehicle uh and with the certainty that you can find charging uh, available and we've seen as a result the spike of um of uh uh Electric vehicle sales in the United States uh, happened under the president 's watch. It's so saw more, more than tripled with uh, what we 're trying to reach is fifty percent new car sales by two thousand and thirty being electric vehicles yes I- and you know again uh, we're, the uh, Detroit three uh, are making ma- massive investments both in production and and in uh, and in producing the supply chains for uh, battery production itself, sir. but you're also seeing uh, a lot of now foreign direct investment. Uh, the uh, Korean auto companies are making uh, big investments in Georgia uh, and other places, so uh, we, we need to get uh, the, the uh, on with this project, and I think we're feeling pretty good that the combination of the financial incentives uh, plus smart regulation uh, that 's coming from the ePA can get us to the fifty percent mark that you mentioned
2: it 's working yes what what have been the main challenges that you have found in implementing ira well
1: that's a, <laughs> that's a, that 's a great question i I, uh, uh, I I describe my job as a lot of blocking and tackling <laughs> <laughs> I so imagine. I think there are three um big ones uh, one is permitting uh, we can we can get into that it 's We got good at stopping things. We need to get good at building things Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. in the country. And so this has been something the administration's focused on at the highest levels of government, including the president. And the White House has organized itself with the cabinet to try to make progress on permitting. Uh, That's particularly a huge need in terms of transmission and interconnection of clean energy resources onto the grid. Uh, So, that's one big challenge.
2: And I I would like to to go deep in that, because um, when we talk about building new clean energy projects, new clean energy infrastructure, it takes an average of five years for the companies and the developers to get the necessary permits uh, and necessary approvals or longer. The White House has said that they will support a bill that was recently introduced by Senator Joe Manchin uh, that will basically speed up the energy projects. Uh, the bill has bipartisan support. Uh, what, did, what are your thoughts and what are the pros and cons of that proposal?
1: Well, uh, we just had action on that and as part of... The, uh, as some of the elements of that bill as part of the debt limit uh, deal yes. that the president negotiated with uh, Speaker McCarthy. Uh, and we got a uh, start on what we think is necessary uh, that uh, consolidated, we set some uh, strong time limits mm-hmm. on how long it should take to do a environmental impact statement or environmental assessment. We uh, combined... Uh, and strengthen the ability to look at an overall program rather than project by project. More use of uh, and, and a better process for getting input at the front end uh, from communities that are affected, which is really important yes. to let people uh, if there are problems, work them out at the beginning, don't work them out in litigation after the permits have been let. Um, if I could, I'll tell you one story, Vanessa, when I uh, came back to the White House. I had, I had a similar role for President Obama. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought I had resolved a, a high-performance uh, transmission project to bring renewable resources from the Southwest to the big markets in uh, Phoenix and Los Angeles. When I was working for President Obama, I came back right after Labor Day. president, after the bill passed, asked me to come back. I come back. First week, I'm back. Uh, over at the Energy Department, I sat down with Secretary Granholm, and uh, we're going to go over the transmission projects that need to be that were permanently needs to be sped up. First project. The project I thought I had (laughs) resolved in 2014. It's nearly 10 years later and it's still on the board.
2: Are you talking about the 10 West Link? We just
1: just, uh, finished the the federal process for for doing this, a project called Sunzia that begins in New Mexico and and, uh, and 10 West just uh, broke ground which is going from bringing renewable resources from Wyoming uh, across into Nevada and then eventually to California. So, I mean, we're making progress, but this is hard and it takes the attention of the most senior levels of government. Mm-hmm. And that, I've, I've worked in three White Houses, I've never seen that before where Cabinet secretaries are going project by project and saying, what's the problem? Why can't we fix it? How do we speed it up? But that's what it's going to take. Because we need to, for example, just on the transmission front, we need to increase high performance transmission, interstate transmission in this country by 60% in the next seven years. It was taking 10, 12, 14 years to to permit a transmission project. We have got to cut that time. We gotta do it smart. Uh, you can do that through these programmatic reviews, mm-hmm. through creating transmission corridors where developers know where they can go, where they're more likely to get the permits that they need. Uh, so, um, it's not fancy <laughs> it's just uh time on task, putting enough people on it yes the i r a gave us a billion dollars to put just people on the permitting mm. process, and we're doing that.
2: So many environmentalists and clean energy leaders um, say that permitting reform is absolutely necessary in order for the implementation of many of the projects of Ira. Do you agree? That yeah, and to I think
1: reform? we need more, and we're hoping that we get more bipartisan support. As I mentioned, we got uh, a down payment, if mm-hmm. you will, uh, in, the, uh, in the debt limit bill, which will help and will speed things up. Uh, to deploy more clean energy, uh, but we really need some focused support on transmission, on interconnection, uh, and, uh, and quite frankly, on community engagement. That was one of the things we asked for. We didn't get in this, in this uh, authority, which was to give the communities the resources they need to participate early. Uh, whether that's uh, communities that have often borne the brunt of uh, pollution from industrial and power sector sources mm-hmm. uh, or tribal communities, et cetera. I was just out in the Pacific Northwest uh, working with uh, the four Columbia Treaty tribes in the Northwest about how we uh, uh, build uh, more clean power to service the, uh, those those tribes. I mean, uh, we got to get uh, that, uh, the, the only way this is gonna work is to have more engagement at the front end, as I noted. And listen to people. If there's a problem, uh, often you can resolve it if you get in at the front end. You can mitigate, you can work around uh, sensitive sites, but you have to to do that at the front end. If you wait to the back end, you just end up in court and, you know, it just, uh, it just can take forever.
2: Makes the process longer. At the same time, uh, if it's going to speed up the process for the clean energy projects, it will also speed up the process for the fossil fuel industry projects. So how how detrimental will be that for achieving our climate goals?
1: Well, you know, look, I think we we have been clear that we see the, tr- the transition to clean, renewable resources as as fundamental, and I think, that that's not going to happen tomorrow. There's going to be a transition. Uh, we're going to continue to utilize uh, fossil fuels, both oil and gas, in the you know in the in the foreseeable future. We ought to do that with the highest um, environmental standards. Uh, we're working hard to eliminate methane uh, emissions from oil and gas development, uh, but uh, we need to do that. S- in a smart way. And quite frankly, the oil and gas industry has uh, a role to play, I think. They have a lot of uh, engineering expertise. uh, They have a lot of capital, et cetera, in uh, certain technologies like green hydrogen, uh, other technologies on carbon management uh, that uh, I think they're looking at the future and saying, okay, we're moving towards a world that where energy is being uh, where the emissions are going down, where we're decarbonizing the energy system, what's our role to play? And you know, we fight with them a lot. We think you know, sometimes they uh, spend more money on stock buybacks than on on uh, good investments, and we point that out when it's <laughs> when it's necessary. And they fight with us when when they think we're doing something wrong. But I think it's it's critical that we make this can this transition in a practical way, but there's no denying the damage that climate change is doing today. It's not in the future. You can go to Chicago today and see the smoke from those uh, Canadian fires. You could look at the uh, massive fires that were here in Colorado in December of 21. And you can, uh, whether it's hurricanes, droughts, floods, uh, sea level rise, we have got to come to grips with the fact that we need to, there's one way uh, and only one path uh, forward, and that's to decarbonize the energy system.
2: You have said it very right. Mm, the International Energy Agency has said that no new fossil fuel infrastructure can be built if our planet wants to avoid the worst consequences of the climate crisis. But according to the Department of Land Management, this administration approved 6,787 drilling leases in the first 25 months. So that is 100 more than the previous administration. So how can you reconcile the message that you just gave us with uh, these numbers?
1: Look, I think, as I said, we need to be uh, doing what we can, uh, and, but within the, A, the bounds of the law, and B, uh, in a way that's practical and, the tra- and that the transition happens. One of the things that occurred that I think, uh, again, was unexpected, was, uh, but demonstrates the vulnerability that the world economy has to, to uh, dependence on fossil fuels was Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine, uh, which threw uh, markets into turmoil. Uh, I think that the United States stepped up and tried to become a reliable supplier of gas uh, to to Europe at a time of great need there, uh, during, uh, you know, particularly during the fir- first winter. Uh, and they responded quite substantially to both uh, create, reduce their demand, uh, but also to change their sources of supply. They were way over dependent on on Russia. We needed to respond to that. I think that we did that in a responsible way. When it comes to uh, leasing uh, 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 properties, uh, we're, again, we're to some extent uh, constrained by the law uh, in terms of giving permits to valid leases that were given by previous administrations, uh, and we're trying to do that in a smart and sensible way, and one, as I said, that puts a puts a responsibility on those developers to reduce emissions, to produce fuels in a cleaner way. But it's not, uh, you know, it's a challenging, uh, it's certainly challenging from a messaging perspective, as you noted, and it's challenging to, to, uh, you know, to get the balance right. We think that the combination of electrification of transportation uh, and uh, efficiency in buildings, shifting the power sector towards renewable and zero carbon resources. Uh, I see my friend Bill Budding in, in the front row. We were talking about small modular nuclear reactors. Uh, that's a technology that's coming online. There's interest in that. Uh, TVA is, uh, I've just been in conversations with them about their deployment strategy. But getting zero carbon into the electricity system, electrifying as much as we can getting more efficiency in both the built sector, uh, tackling industrial processes, building out green hydrogen. That's what we need to do, and we've got 27 years to do it until we need to get to net zero. That's an audacious challenge, but I think it's It's, one we can meet. But in the meantime, we've got to balance that with keeping the economy running, and uh, and, and so, you know, we're trying to make smart decisions in that regard.
2: So, um, I know that, I mean, without a doubt, this administration has made an enormous commitment, I mean, unprecedented commitment to, to clean energy and to protecting our planet against climate change. But, um, but I have to ask you about the Willow Project. Uh, President Biden promised when he was campaigning that he was not going to to give new leases in federal lands. And the will project was approved a couple of months ago, and and as you know, it will release 9.2 million metric tons of CO2 into the atmosphere every year for 30 years. So, um, after that approval came through, um, I remember I read an article in the New York Times that uh, talked about the impact that that had in the younger generations. Uh, The the young people that actually voted for for this administration, believing that uh, they were really committed and believing in those campaign promises. So, so what would be your message to them?
1: I think the overall message is we're on we, we we have it's a hu- well. Let me let me talk about Willow first, and then I'll come come to that. Uh, we didn't let the uh, the leases for Willow. The leases were had been let 20 years ago, uh, and the company had valid leases to develop the property. Uh, there was uh, we considered there was an environmental impact statement uh, that about whether to permit the project and go forward with it. Uh, we thought that the the company had valid right to develop the project and that we were quite vulnerable uh, to litigation and to paying huge penalties if we had stopped the project. We thought the better cha- the better strategy there, working with ConocoPhillips, was to reduce the footprint of the project. It was reduced by more than 40%. Protect uh, uh, 12 million acres uh, in the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska, and withdraw the rest of the Arctic Ocean. Uh, President Obama had withdrawn a considerable amount of it, but we, re, we withdrew the remainder of the Arctic Ocean from f- further leasing and drilling. That that was a, a path that balanced their legal rights with the need to kind of shrink the project. But to put the project in perspective, and you, you accurately stated what the what the emission profile is. Uh, and even if you assume that none of that is substituted, like that's all additionality, if you will, the, uh, uh, and oil from other places wouldn't have been substituted for that, uh, that production, that's less than 1% of the annual emission reductions from the IRA. So I think what we need to do is make sure that people know, that there is a strategy to tackle climate change, to stay on track with our primary promise, which is to cut emissions by 50%, to invest uh, in clean technology, by the way, to put young people to work doing that work. Uh, The Department of Energy just today, Secretary Granholm released a report that said Uh, clean energy, energy overall, and clean energy in particular, was one of the fastest growing uh, job segments uh, in the overall economy, more than 300,000 jobs created last year. Overwhelming uh, numbers of young people going into that work. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's opportunities for service in that space. And I think we need to, I think the president is committed to demonstrating uh, his commitment Uh, to both uh, preserving uh, nature, to to conserving resources where we can, uh, to uh, being smart about how we utilize our natural resources to deal with uh, making investments in uh, resilience and sustainability. But the overall project is one in which there's no one who's been more committed uh, to tackling climate change the President Biden, and I think we got a good
2: story to tell on that. That's, uh, that's undeniable, uh, Mr., Mr. Podesta. Um, the scientific community have been very clear. I mean, we have 30 years to make this, 27 years to make this transition, and uh, these next 10 years, this decade, is going to be critical. Do you think that we're moving fast enough?
1: I think we're, you know, yeah, I think you got to look at that from a national perspective and from the, and from the global perspective. I think, and remember the previous administration pulled us out of Paris, did everything it could to undermine investment in uh, critical technologies, uh, tried to zero out the uh, science budgets that were based on uh, trying to tackle climate change. So we, and and, uh, had a dramatic impact on the scientific workforce in the federal government that we're trying to rebuild. So we started, in a place where we needed to reestablish the seriousness of purpose uh, and uh, the leadership of the United States globally. And I think the president did that by making this, a, again, a center of his economic strategy mm-hmm. uh, by uh, making a commitment, uh, which we refer to as Justice 40, that 40% of the benefits would go to committees, uh, communities that have, have been disadvantaged and borne the brunt of pollution. Uh, that's across the board, not just through the IRA and Bipartisan Infrastructure Law investments. Uh, and setting that target that's that we think we can meet, which is that 50% reduction target by 2030. Uh, and I think we're on track to do that. We're, it's not just coming from those investments, uh, although we get about to 40% just with the uh, passage of the IRA, maybe a little bit more, uh, but it's gonna take the full weight of the government, whether that's um, on uh, using the government as its resources to procure uh, and uh, be a sort of a leader in the, in the movement, uh, whether that's buildings or transportation, et cetera, or uh, the authorities we have under the Clean Air Act. We've set aggressive standards to decarbonize the power sector that EPA just recently uh, released that uh, uh, will will get us on track, uh, reduce emissions by 646 million metric tons. We set very strong standards for tailpipe emissions uh, for both um, uh, autos and light duty trucks, but also for uh, heavier vehicles. Um, <clears throat> we're deploying and using the resources uh, in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and, and the IRA uh, to ensure that, that uh, cities and community groups take advantage of the uh, investments that are in the bill so that they can begin, uh, particularly those communities, those mayors, those governors that want to lead the charge, have the resources uh, to be able to... Uh, to To make the kinds of investments, uh, whether that's putting rooftop solar on every school in a city which some um, uh, cities have pledged to do, or uh, retrofitting their buildings or uh, decarbonizing their transportation fleets in those cities, we're seeing massive investment across the board, and we have very good partners. And by the way, in Washington this is a really partisan issue. When you go out into the country, yes. there's more support, I think. Uh, I've had very good conversations with Republican governors who let me tell you they're anxious to get these investments yes. you know
2: Or mayors uh, mayors at the local level they exactly. have done a, a terrific job um, uh. you know I mean the
1: more the more it gets into the you know kind of partisan uh, Washington space mm-hmm. uh, the the more difficult the conversation is but uh, yeah I, I talked uh, just to give an example I uh talked to Governor State of Oklahoma the other day uh, a couple of weeks, maybe a month ago, and uh, he was very happy to get the new uh, Enel, the Italian uh, renewable company's investment in solar manufacturing in Oklahoma. His question to me was, why did I lose the Volkswagen factory to Canada? <laughs> so, I mean, I think when you look at it from that perspective of where people want job creation to happen, where sustainability can happen, where uh, investment can happen, then I think, uh, and, and even if you just look at public opinion, there's strong support, more than majority support across the political spectrum for these kind of investments.
2: Definitely. And and in the past couple of years, I mean, the previous administration, obviously, uh, it was at the local level that these leaders, uh, governors and and mayors actually took the lead to move us forward uh, to the sustainable future that that we want. Um, But how important, I know that you work in in the national, in the domestic policy, but how important it is uh, at the international arena that now the United States is actually leading by example? Well,
1: look, I think there's, there, uh, it's critical. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there've been complaints, uh, coming from our international trading partners, about the fact that one of the things we make no apologies for is we wanna see industries built in the United States. We wanna put people back to work. We've had a manufacturing renaissance here. Uh, I mentioned uh, Steve's presentation, just a spike in manufacturing uh, investment in the United States after really two decades of flatlining, we don't apologize for that. Uh, we encourage them to do the same thing, and if you look at our our partners in Europe, in Asia, uh, in India, we've just I just uh, was with the president in his bilateral meetings with with Prime Minister Modi. I think this is happening across the globe. Uh, now there are complaints about the the particular way that we've constructed that. We're trying to work through that uh, in partnership, uh, but uh, I just say. Uh, Two things, Vanessa. One is we got overly dependent on China for a source of supply uh, for critical technologies in the in the clean tech space, particularly uh, in uh, in in clean batteries and upstream in the solar technology space. We need uh, to reshore those, and we've seen. Uh, a lot of advancement in that of the, those numbers I quoted are are in in those areas, and we incur- and we need to find partnership with our friends and allies to make sure that those uh, supply chains are reliable and from friendly sources for critical minerals for uh, ingots and wafers in the solar space, et etc so we 're working together, but I think one of the other things it's worth pointing out is another critical leadership role that the U.S. has is innovation. Yes. We're putting a lot of money in the labs. We're, the private sector investment's driving costs down. Uh, BCG estimated that the investments from, uh, from the IRA will drop the global cost of clean energy by 25%. So, no matter where you are in the world, whether you're in India or Africa, that cost reduction is vital to your ability to deploy uh, in uh, using you know strategies to build your economy, create growth uh, and uh, do it in a sustainable way. That and I think that's
2: a huge that global public wonderful. good. Yes, definitely. Um, I wanted to ask you one more question about Ira. During the, the Trump administration, the EPA reversed almost 100 environmental laws. And, and of course, you know, he, he put in charge of the EPA, Andrew Wheeler and Scott Pruitt, there were people that were not not really looking for the best interest of, of the mission of the agency. Uh, so that would, hon- be,
1: that would be slightly understated. <laughs>
2: I know. <laughs> so at least 100 environmental laws that were meant to protect uh, human health and the environment were reversed or revoked. So in the case that we will have another Trump administration, how do you make sure that the advances uh, that you have made with IRA and with the Infrastructure Act are not Reverse. Well, that's a frightening thought, but yes. let me let
1: me try to answer a few kind of future uh, Republican administration that does, that doesn't have the same uh, uh, commitment. Um, whether whenever that occurs, um, I think one of the things that's exciting about the structure of the Inflation Reduction Act um, is it's got deep roots, uh, though that. 10 years of predictability that I mentioned, the investment that's happening right now, the jobs that are being created, the facilities that are being stood up, the deployment of clean energy, uh, the steel in the ground has uh, with, the cer- with the expectation, I said certainty, but with, certainly with the expectation that that support uh, through policy is gonna be there, uh, changes the political c- equation. You know, uh, I was around in 2009, 2010, when Waxman Markey was being debated, the cap and trade legislation, and I I, um, sometimes describe, people ask me, what's changed between now and then? I said, then we were just talking about what what did we need to shut down? Now we're talking about what do we need to build? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a different conversation. And I think it's more—it's a more rooted conversation, again, in red states and blue states and communities across the country, very hard to uproot. Uh, and I think that um, if you look at both the combination of investments being made and private sector pledges being made to their constituencies, to their consumers, to their shareholders, about the trajectories that they're on, I think this this policy is, uh, is here to stay. And there's a, you know, elections have consequence. I don't want to, I don't want <laughs> to, uh, you know, I've been doing this for too long. Um, but elections have consequence. So who you put in charge of those critical agencies. I have the, Uh, honor and the pleasure of working with committed public servants across the board. I mentioned, you know, uh, Secretary Granholm, Michael Regan is in uh, Vermont today announcing with Senator Sanders, a $7 billion program to put rooftop solar and community solar in low and moderate income communities across the country. Uh, Secretary Ramondo, who's really in charge of, uh, of building out the Chips and Science uh, Act. Uh, Secretary Yellen, who's been, uh, you know, critical in making sure we stay on track and on time. Uh, you know, the commitment of people and the and the seriousness of leadership and the mission matters and elections have consequences. And so I'm I'm proud of the president, I'm proud of the president, the vice president, but I'm proud of the team. And so it'll have consequence, but I think the policy, uh, you know, we went through, uh, it, to, to draw an analogy, we went through this and the repeated efforts to try to repeal the uh, Affordable Care Act, uh, but, In the end of the day, the Affordable Care Act stood the test of time. And I think these policies will uh, stand the test of that time.
2: Wonderful to hear. Well, before being named uh, the senior advisor to the president uh, for clean energy and innovation, you serve as a top climate advisor to President Obama, and you also work in the passing of the Paris Climate Agreement. Why is this issue personally important for you? You know, I think it's it's it's
1: like, uh, in some sense, it is what is going to define the economy and the security of the human race going forward in our country across the planet. It is, in my mind, the most important issue uh, that we're facing as a as a planet and as a species. So why not work on what's the most important yes. thing? You know, I sort of got into it. I was kind of the green chief of staff when I was President Clinton's uh-huh. chief of staff. Uh, worked with...
2: Um, so it was with, always something that you had inside? Yeah, it was always
1: something that, that, I, that, I, uh, that I deeply cared about. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extremely challenging, uh, you know, complicated, almost Rubik's cube, but um, uh, the IPCC in 2018, when they did a report that's referred to as the 1.5 report, Mm. they were asked in Paris, the international body of scientists, tell us the difference between what a world where global average temperatures rise 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial level and what a world where Two degrees of of uh, global warming take place because that was actually what we were trying to hit two degrees C that was the the uh, argument of mm. what we needed to do and they came back in 2018 with a stark uh, analysis of the impact on the natural world from the difference with with uh, in the oceans, uh, with species loss, etc., The difference between what a 1.5 world looked like and what a two degree world looked like. That reoriented the whole conversation. So no longer were people talking about 80% reductions. In order to stabilize the atmosphere, you had to get to a net zero not 100% reductions, but net zero. We're taking as much carbon out of the atmosphere as we're putting into it. They also said in that report uh, that that will take a, uh, a change in the global economy, a revolution in the global economy on the size and scale that's never occurred in human history. So think about that what's what's more interesting to work on i mean i know there's probably a lot more <laughs> sessions on ai right now but and I, ai probably has a place in in trying to solve this this uh this challenge but what is more interesting than working on a transformation of the global economy on a size and scale that's never occurred in human history, and that has to happen in 27 yeah. years. And
2: um, and I have to say, in the personal level, I think it's it's fascinated that um, that for me that we're living in these times because uh, it never happened before at this scale, this transformation that we're going through. So we'll need to to change many things, pretty much everything: the way that we move, the way that we travel, the way that we eat, the way that we dress, uh, is going to to be a huge undertaking, and um, we will need from everybody, not only state actors, but also companies, and, and of course, uh, the civil societies. It's um, is so important that we all get on board. It's been a, a privilege to talk to you, yeah. Mr. Podesta. Um, and I, wanna, I wanted to leave a couple of minutes for, for questions for the audience. So You have to call me John though. No?
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have one here. Hi, Joan Michelson, Electric Ladies podcast. So there's an interesting, this is a very corporate audience as well, and you know this audience better than just about anybody. There's an interesting juxtaposition with the corporate sector because on one hand, they, there's an incentive with all the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act and the other, the other legislation, but there's been 15,000 comments and lots of pushback to the SEC climate risk disclosure rules, and so you kind of have a little bit of push and pull here on the, the corporate sector. So talk about the impact that you're, the response you're getting from the corporate sector um, on these initiatives and how you're managing that. Push and pull, and also, if you can talk about, I was in the grumpy session too. You might have heard my question about why isn't the public really understanding the impact of the of these uh, this legislation and how well the economy is doing as well. Well, <clears throat> thank you. Uh, that was. Uh, let, I'll start with the
1: with the former, which is the, and obviously the SEC rules, independent process. You know, is being managed by the chairman, Gary Gensler, et cetera, of the White House uh, uh, has an attitude about climate risk, uh, particularly financial risk. Um, Monica Medinos came to this uh, session as well, and I were in the back saying, you know, Steve needs to upgrade his charts and talk a little bit more about (laughs) the, uh, the financial risk embedded in what we're seeing happen, uh, again, I won't go through the litany, but what we're seeing happen right now, which is going to accelerate in terms of business risk that's coming from extreme weather, climate change, a disruption of food, water systems, et cetera, uh, just so that people have an understanding of that that's a real uh, issue with with respect to financial risk. And uh, I'm hoping that the SEC will land a a solid rule because I think investors are in fact quite interested uh, in seeing how corporate leadership is tackling what they see as future risk uh, for their investment. And so um, I'll get over my skis if I say what I think he should do and it's, it's his job to do it and it's an independent agency, but I think we need Uh, Just as Europe has done, we need to move forward uh, with informing investors about uh, how climate risk is really going to affect uh, the bottom line. With respect to the public, you know, one of the, there's certainly a lag time. I mentioned the ACA, you certainly felt that with uh, with the uh, Affordable Care Act. And there's certainly a lag time between when things pass, when things get deployed, when people feel them. (laughs) And, uh, but it's our job to go out and communicate that. And for the people who want to see a different future in this country and want to see this transition uh, and, and tackling climate change to help us tell the story of what's really going on. There's nothing, I think you can, you know, I'm spewing off national statistics, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing like localizing this and and getting really down uh, to the narrative of local stories of people going to work, doing the right thing, building the right uh, kinds of projects that's gonna, you know, ultimately uh, convince people. And so the president is in Chicago today uh, and uh, making an argument for why an investment-led strategy that is built uh, around the ideas of public investment uh, combined with worker education and and uh, mobilization and uh, more competition in the economy uh, is going to produce stronger growth. And we've seen tremendous uh, economic success, 13 million jobs in two years, uh, U.S. economy outperforming the rest of the world in terms of uh, post-COVID uh, recovery. Um, and again, I'll, I'll quote Steve again. Why? Because we had a different policy change. We made the right sort of investments, and we can, you know, fight about uh, some of the details of that. But the idea that we were going to tackle uh, the COVID, the post-COVID recession, with uh, public investment, putting people to work, creating a stability, and transforming the energy system—I think has proven to be uh, a, a good call, and one that we'll obviously spend the next 15 months talking to the American people about. I how many ever? 16 months ago. <laughs> uh,
4: quick question: You, you spoke about it briefly before, but when you look at the advances in technology. Reliability of nuclear. Last time, right, the technology in our country was 60 years old. Right from now, do you think, when you juxtapose that against the permitting challenges, do you think new nuclear kind of technologies will have a place I, in in decarbonizing? I I,
1: I, I do. <laughs> I think both globally, but but uh, particularly at the at the small modular level, in the United States probably with a leadership position there. Uh, more likely to be developed uh, here and regulatory regimes to be developed here that make the certainty of deployment uh, around the rest of the world uh, more likely. Uh, I think it's probably still eight years away. uh, And uh, I was describing the conversation we had this morning. Uh, There's probably some ways in which we uh, need and can in fact speed that up, but I think these technologies are promising. Uh, they're, reliable, they're safe, uh, and uh, and the waste management issues are are. Uh, being built in at the front end, rather than waiting to what we do, do what we did in the first uh, you know, ma- ma- massive investment, uh, which sort of ended with Three Mile Island. Uh, so, you know, I've worked a lot on this issue o- over the years. <clears throat> it's really a question, I think, of economics. Is this a cost proposition that is going to make sense for baseload power compared to the cost reduction curves on uh, uh, on renewable resources plus storage. And I think the need for baseload is strong. Uh, we're working with TVA, which is kind of maybe at the front of the line on deployment. Maybe not quite at the front of the line, but they're pretty, you know, uh, they're serious about de- uh, deploying for modular reactors in the next decade. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we just need to make sure that the public is satisfied, that the safety is there, uh, that technology is quite promising, there are different designs, people are, we'll see who emerges this, uh, and there's global interest. But they're kind of looking in the United States to go first in a way. Yeah, you have to avoid
4: the knot in my backyard. You
2: yeah. Uh, go ahead here.
4: John, the global um, uh, overheating of the world, we can address this in the United States probably with our European friends, but I worry very much. We don't seem to have... China's building coal plants as we talk. India's building coal and plants and oil you know, refineries as we talk. If the rest of the world isn't brought into this same thought process. Is it gonna make any difference about our being able to get 2% or below?
1: You know, look, that's the, that's the uh, biggest question that, uh, that sort of exists out there. It, 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 but just to, to be clear, the renewable goals uh, that India set forward are huge and substantial but they had 600 million people who who lacked access to electricity. Hmm. So the question is, what's the pace of clean and how do you begin to retire dirty? I think the Chinese um, uh, picture is cloudy and clouded. Uh, I think they, uh, back when I was working with Obama, I think they're, Uh, commitments and plans for their renewable built-out, which they accomplished, and certainly they've taken the lead in terms of electric uh, vehicles, um, were were very substantial, but they've continued to build out uh, and rely way too much on coal for both industrial uh, and power sector needs, and that has got to end. And so it's not the United States that or, you know, w- whether we talk again and admire Secretary Kerry's commitment to keep going back and uh, Secretary Blinken was uh, was uh, just there and saw President Xi, the rest of the world has to put pressure on the Chinese to begin to change course, to re- more reti- retire earlier. They're probably peaking in their emissions probably in the next year or two, but they have to go further faster, uh, or we're just not going to solve the problem. And, and the same thing is probably true of India, but the development challenge there is a little bit different. And I think the United States has a role to play in partnering with places like India. Uh, the USAID is working with, for example, the uh india you know india has a very elaborate uh rail system to electrify their rail system the united states has a role to play in c- creating strong partnerships and uh i know that uh when secretary Jewell was uh in office she spent a lot of time on this problem so
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay do do we have time for more questions or when okay so uh you here Uh,
3: John, I want to ask question whether this massive federal investment going to help or hurt economic equity. Since the pandemic started,
2: the racial wealth gap has increased by 70%. And SBA released for the first time federal procurement data by race by ethnicity. Black businesses only received 1.67% of $559 billion federal spend eligible for small businesses. So I'm concerned. I, look,
1: I'll, let, let me answer that directly. I think, I, I think we're, we, we should be concerned about that. I think what the IRA in particular, the Inflation Reduction Act, was uh, revolutionary in, is cr- trying to enhance the ability to ensure that those investments went to communities that have often been less left out, the way they the way that worked was to prov- to provide uh, significant uh, adders to the to the investment and production tax credits to cite those investments uh, in low income communities, disadvantaged communities traditional energy communities, uh, and to pay a 5x bonus on the credit for paying prevailing wage uh, and uh, using certified apprentices, uh, so that the jobs would be good jobs, the investment would go to communities in rural America in in places, again, that borne the brunt of pollution. So I think the structure of the law was different than uh, where those uh ideas, equations really were not thought about as much uh, in past uh, efforts. So I'm optimistic that we can see that happen. And I mentioned the the program that, that uh, Michael Regan has announced today <laughs> uh, in Vermont, which is directly aimed at distributing both training workers in those communities, Uh, and installing uh, and providing the benefits of clean technology uh, in low-income neighborhoods and moderate-income neighborhoods uh, through both rooftop and community solar. That's the kind of thing we should be doing. Great. One last question, sir.
4: Thank you very much, Vanessa. Greg Hamra, also from Miami. Citizens Climate Lobby, two weeks ago yesterday, we had 900 people on Capitol Hill lobbying for volunteer lobbyists, by the way citizens like you and me lobbying for a number of uh, uh, policies that you actually mentioned Mr. Podesta which is uh, building electrification and efficiency permitting reform very important and one thing that you didn't really talk about but uh, actually is a perfect follow-up to this gentleman's question the what about China question which is a very important question if the US is 11 percent of global emissions it almost doesn't matter what we do and Vanessa keeps harping on this all the time every time her and it makes total sense could you please speak about another uh, to, to the audience here uh, uh, th- another policy called the carbon border adjustment, and how important that is yeah. to allow pricing in one country to f- cross borders. Something regulations do not do. Prices do cross borders, and so okay. this would accelerate uh, the drawdown of dirty and accelerate clean.
1: Right. Thank you. And we, uh, we in general terms, we've we've uh, supported that idea. Let me get specific, though, and I wanna reject the premise, though, for that you started with, which is it doesn't matter what the US ma- does. It matters a lot what the US does. If the US is on its back heels, then the rest of the world's not going anywhere. If the US is in a leadership position, if they're driving change, then and particularly uh, working with our allies and partners we've reordered the world economy, then other people are gonna come along uh, as well. And so it matters a lot what we do here. And I think that idea that, well, you know, China is gonna do what it's gonna do. China is not gonna do what it's gonna do if we do the right thing. They only get off the hook when we're not out there. So that's number one. Secondly, on the carbon border adjustment, uh, we're in. We're uh, trying. In, we're in con, uh, consultation, trying to work out an arrangement on uh, aluminum and steel with the European allies, with a emissions-based uh, standard, uh, which hopefully will resolve uh, sometime this fall, which gives the basis of, uh, or it's it's kind of an underpinning of what a carbon border adjustment could look like. Europeans are further ahead. They're committed to, in, in essence, it's not, I, I would not call it protectionism. They're, they're committed to not permitting free ridership by, uh, against their own internal sources of supply by saying if we're going to put a burden of decarbonization on our companies, then people who are importing into our, our zone have the same responsibility. I think that's an idea the United States should take up uh, and I think we need to harmonize. One of the things that's a little bit tricky between the U.S. and Europe is they essentially uh, have a, uh, a uh, price-based emission system. We have a standards-based emission system. So it's not easy to technically uh, blend those systems. But I think the decarbonization goal is what we need to get to. And I think Again, we need to ensure that there's a level playing field for our producers in that context. So I'm glad you brought that up.
2: Well, thank you so much. Thank you, all of you. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Mr. Podesta, for your leadership and for everything that you do.
0: John Podesta is the senior advisor to President Biden for clean energy innovation and implementation in the White House Office of Domestic Climate Policy. Prior to this, Podesta chaired Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and counseled President Obama on climate policy and initiatives. Podesta is the founder and former chair of both the Center for American Progress and Washington Center for Equitable Growth. Vanessa Hawk is the anchor and director of Planeta Tierra, Noticias Telemundo's environmental issues investigative unit. She is also the co founder of Sasha Mama, or Mother Jungle, a nonprofit working to inspire, empower, and educate the Latino community on climate issues and sustainability. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson.